the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. Good to be with you again. And we are going to continue on with this uh, series uh, called Homecoming. It's a name of a book that was published by myself last year. The subheading is How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, last week, we're going to pick it up where we left off, and it basically was referring to the fact that uh, everything that's said in Ephesians uh, 2 and Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4 regarding this one new man construction project, also in Ephesians 5, I might add, um, has to do with God building something. He's constructing something. And uh, where we left off last week uh, was that we were talking about the ultimate purpose of God is to build or put together or construct, or whatever word you want to use, um, a divine-slash-human house in which to live. Um, And the characteristics of this divine-slash-human house, this is all based on Isaiah 66, um, chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, and um, I'll just go back there very briefly. Um, This is the verse where God declares, I am... Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, but where is the house you will build for me, the place of my rest? And that's a question mark. And so it, it seems strange to us because we really don't talk very much about God indwelling his creation. In the, We talk a lot about God being with us, God being near us, God being next to us, God walking with us, but this word in has a much deeper connotation. It has a much more significant meaning. It's way more profound because it means that God is declaring that he's really interested in locating a place where he can have his place of rest. And we talked about that last week, saying that uh, God didn't say uh, heaven is my home in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. He didn't say that. Um, he said, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And basically claiming, hey, I, my hand has made all these things, as we see in verse 2. And, um, but he, said, he asked this question that we just kind of blow past. You know, we don't pay any attention to it. But where is the house you will build for me, the place of my rest? And we were exploring that last week saying, boy, asking this question, is God not at rest I mean, he's God. He's creator, father, God. How can he not be at rest? But that's the essence of the question. It's, uh, you have to read between the lines and, and say, well, I, I think inferentially it's, it's logical to conclude that he is not at rest, or he wouldn't have asked the question in the first place. Well, a lot of us may feel uncomfortable with that, and we just don't <laughs> want to give it the attention it 
it really demands because that's requiring a much deeper walk and much deeper challenge in our Judeo-Christian relational experience with the Godhead itself, all elements of the Godhead, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And and so in verse 2, of that same chapter, he answers his own question, and he says, "To whom, to, and to this is the one to whom I will look, uh, who is humble, and contrite, and trembles at my word." Well, that obviously is not um, dealing with innate. I mean, I'm sorry, um, with material that is something other than a human. In other words, it's not talking about steel it's not talking about bricks and mortar and wood and cement and all the other things that we think of in a construction process uh, process and project and it brings to mind that wait he's talking about living inside human flesh well before everybody starts to shift in their chair and get really uncomfortable i would also tell you, listen to last week's show where we talked about uh, Jesus in his last supper, pretty much the last thing he ever said to his apostles, and how he prayed right before he uh, was going to the Garden of Gethsemane to get arrested. And he was talking about, in John 17, um, what he was praying to the Father um, about, and and um, not to belabor the point, he basically said, look, I'm, Father, I'm praying for not only these, and he's pointing to the uh, Jewish apostles who were all there that night, but also those who, through their word, will find out about you, Father. And, and the these and those we talked about last week, we said that these were the, obviously the Jews, the apostles who were Hebrews, in his presence. But the those were another group of people. And those, and those were all the Gentiles that were going to come in, um, as we see in the Acts um, chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and all the way through Acts uh, church experience where this kingdom word went out and there was this tsunami of new believers who, most of whom, wait, the, in the latter part of this experience, in the later part of this experience, were, Jew, were not Jews, they were Gentiles. And of course that brought in the quandary of uh, Acts chapter 15 where all the Jewish leaders needed to have a council or a, a rendezvous, a come together, uh, to say what do we do with all of this influx? So that prayer of, G- of Yeshua, Jesus, to his father that night before he died was answered big time. It was one of those exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ever imagine or think of type of responses, and but but the but the oneness element is is in verse twenty one of John seventeen that they all may be one. Talking about the two groups of people, the these and those. In other words, the Jews and the Gentiles, and the and the request in prayer by Yeshua who. That's his Jewish name, which means salvation. Jesus of Nazareth, praying to his Father, saying that, that they all may be one. He started out in verse uh, 20 saying, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. That's Jew and Gentile coming together. And that's what this book, Homecoming, is all about. What is the glue what is the uh, magnetic force attraction that brings these two uh, groups together as siblings of a mutual father, as heirs, not just heirs, but co-heirs with Christ, as um, Paul explains in the book of Romans, chapter 8. And, and so we're talking about membership in something special called the family of God. And we studied last week uh, the when you become born again in Ephesians chapter 2, as a Gentile, Paul clearly says, you're no longer considered to be an alien or a stranger far away from all of the 
experiences that the Jews went through with God, including the covenants. The covenants ultimately were about the Gentiles because Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, plural. Well, people of the nations are called goyim, um, and that means the plural of Gentiles, people of the nations. And going back to verse 21, I want to talk to you about this oneness. And here's the second part of this request that Jesus is making to his Father, that they may all be one as you, Father. Note, he didn't say, are with me. I'm reading out of the New King James. He says that you, Father, are in me. And correspondingly, he says, and I in you, capital Y on you, that they also may be one in us. Well, who is the they also may be? Well, it was those two groups of these and those that he just prayed for in verse 20, the verse right above verse 21. We have to read the context here. And contextually, it's saying, I'm in you, Father, in you, and you're in me. And, and um, Jesus explained that to, to the apostle Philip when Philip had earlier asked in John 14, show us the Father. And Jesus explained to him, you're looking at the Father when you're looking at me because of that oneness, because of that union in God, in each other. But look at this is now inviting us to come into the, what Jesus is already experiencing in the Father. He's saying there's more, way, way more, more than you can imagine. The Godhead wants to indwell us. That's the verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 66. Go back and read it. That was prophetic. And here is this concept talking about the oneness, the unity, but the union, the coming together of the Godhead to want to dwell in man. And even that, as mind-blowing as that is, isn't the end. Go on to the next line. That I, I and you... Oh, let me just go back. I'm going to read contextually, 21. That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That was the whole point. Why does God want to come and indwell human flesh? So that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. That is the point. The world won't see it. The world won't hear it if we don't have that experience of being in union with God, inside God, and them inside us. I mean, read verse 21 of John 17 over and over until you get the concept. Then look, and then go over to verse 23. Skip over uh, to verse 23. He spells it out with even more clarity. I in them, talking about these and those, and you, Father, in me, talking about Jesus and the Father, that they, who's the they? The these and those, the Jews and the Gentiles, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you sent me, you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Welcome to the family. But realize this is not going to be an arm's length transaction. This is about as intricate and intimate as you can get. And I think that a lot of people don't want to go there. They, they're not, <laughs> it's, whoa, that, if this is really the goal, then that means I might have to, to be in union with God. If that's the goal, that's the target, that's the objective, that's the destiny, well, that means I might have to allow God to cl- clean me up on the inside a lot. Because there are Bible verses that we did last week says, hey, without holiness, you're not going to even see God. So that means we got to allow him to make us holy. Again, this is last week's show. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, it begins earlier with something called righteousness. I don't mean um, imputed righteousness. Yeah, we have imputed righteousness when we first come to the Lord. I get that, the righteousness of Christ. I get that. But that whole imputed righteousness is so that God can clean us up in the sanctification, washing 
in our interior process as we get cleaned up that is a step-by-step experience and it oftentimes takes a lifetime to allow god to do that but in the meantime as we're giving ourselves to that process agreeing with that process and making ourselves available to that process and willing to go into that process and participate and basically signing on for that process. We don't preach that in our churches. If, if the goal is not to die and go to a place, as we've talked about many times in past shows, and again, I'm not anti-heaven, but it, that isn't the goal of the Judeo-Christian walk. But if the goal is union with God, as we see in these verses, well, actually four chapters, when I really get into this, read all of John 14. Read all of John chapter 15. Read the entire part of John 16. Read the whole thing of John 17. I mean, that is the subject matter. That's the whole point. God's got a problem on his hands still, and it's called rebellion that started in the second heavens, came down to earth, and infected mankind because we agreed with it through our first parents. God is not in the business of transporting people unchanged up to a paradise called heaven where, what do you call heaven when you bring a whole bunch of folks who haven't submitted to this sanctification process? That's a $50 word to just mean cleansing our insides out, to get rid of the rebellion. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? Well, very s- simply, you can simply said, but it's not simply done, But simply said, it's doing the part of the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy will be done. That's how you walk through the sanctification process. you got to die to the what the complete Jewish Bible calls the old nature. King James uses the word flesh. I don't like that because people just look at skin and say, yeah, that's flesh. But mm -mm, it's talking about something way deeper than just your skin. It's talking about your fallen nature character before you know, come to know Christ and his Father and experience the Holy Spirit. And so I think old nature is a better description of what needs to be cleaned up, what needs to be um, basically purified. And that's not add water and shake. That doesn't happen. Well, it happens spiritually, instantaneously. We know that. You know, um, Salvation is right here, right now. But salvation unto what? We never asked that question. What were we saved for? I know what we were told. We're told so that when we die, get to go to a place called heaven, but that's not the gospel at all. It's not even, there's, <laughs> there's no verse that says the purpose for which Jesus came, the reason for which Jesus came, so when I die, I get to go to a place called heaven. That's not why he came. And this is kind of where we left off. I want to read this to you um, at, in the last show. I wanted to... I had to cut off on that, and I want to read um, a verse that shows you why he came very clearly. And that is in 2 Corinthians 6.16 to the end. And then we'll go over to 2 Corinthians 7. So let's check that out real quick, because it answers the question, why were we saved? I mean, what was the point? Just to die and be transported to another place without without changing the fallen nature or fallen character of who we are, without dealing with the soul man? What does that mean? Well, our mind. It means our will. It means our emotions. It's our character. It's who we are. Yeah, but I'm saved by grace with faith. Yeah, it is. I get it. It's a free scholarship. You can't earn it. But you have, we, no one asks, well, what happens if using the experience of the Jews as a, as a typology sample of what uh, salvation looks like. What if, what if I don't want to leave Egypt under the slavery of and the, and the tyranny of Pharaoh, who represents in typology Satan? What if I, what if I just want to take the fact that I wasn't killed that night on the tenth plague because I did finally obey God through <laughs> the instructions that came from Moses, and I killed the lamb, the unblemished lamb, and I put that blood on my doorpost and all that? But I didn't want to go out to the desert. I mean, why would I do that? I have my little uh, garden of leeks and uh, onions, and so I can just hang out here. And maybe Pharaoh will be nicer to me, and uh, even though I remain a slave to sin, 
a slave to that system of Pharaoh of Egypt. What what if he might give me some straw back that I can make the bricks for his idols? And I get the straw back, and the bricks will hold together. You see, when we believe this current unfortunate, inaccurate gospel that says the reason Jesus came was so I die, get to go to a place, it's not why he came. Let me read Second Corinthians six sixteen. This is a question that's asked. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Because he just said in earlier in the chapter that we are the temple of God. Paul understood that. And God's building something. He's building a temple, a place in which to live. That goes back to Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And here he, he says right now in the second line, uh, 2 Corinthians six sixteen, for you are the temple of the living God. Have we ever processed that? Have we ever sat and said, oh, that's nice? Well, Okay, but you're not St. Patrick's Cathedral. You know, you're not the um, Greek Orthodox Church down the street. You're not, you know, um, the converted uh, factory building into, you know, a, a seated theater. No, he's saying you're the house of God. You're the temple of the living God. Now, check this out. As God has said, I will dwell in them. This is New Testament, folks. He didn't say with. He used the preposition in. Are you ready for this? Because this demands way more than our cursory, oh, yeah, I agree, you know, that I was, you know, saved the four spiritual laws and I was saved by grace through faith. But we have to ask why. Why were you saved? It's a scholarship, folks. It's not a diploma. I'll say that again. Salvation is a gift of an opportunity. It's like an all all expenses paid for scholarship. Okay, you can't earn it. We understand that. We can explain that to the world in 30 seconds. But we never ask the next question, what was the point of the scholarship? It's to get the diploma. And heaven isn't the diploma. Union with God is the diploma. Unity and union with God, what we just read, is the diploma. That's the point. That's why you got to go out into the desert following Moses. Because God says in Deuteronomy, you don't know me. Not relationally, you don't. You don't depend on me. You don't have experiences with me. And the only way that you're going to get to know me is to be able to be put in a situation where you have to depend on me before I give you your inheritance. So it says, continuing on, Second Corinthians six sixteen, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their gods. You see, as you allow God to come in and have this union, all of a sudden he's now defining relationships. Listen, he's saying now who you belong to. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That answers the question of once we allow this union experience to take to take place now all of a sudden there's who do you belong to because we can only belong to either one or two of two kingdoms either the kingdom of darkness and the power of sin over our lives or the kingdom of light and the kingdom of life which is knowing god relationally those are the two choices it's very binary i know being binary in this current culture is not very popular but guess what we're talking about the kingdom of god and how it works now look at verse 17 therefore Come out from among them and be separate. You see, that's the process of sanctification. You want to get near God and have him come in, you've got to allow him to clean us up from the inside out. What's that called? Getting rid of the rebellion so that we naturally say, thy will be done in every aspect of our life. Every thought, every deed, every notion, every motivation, Every incentive, every action, come out from among them, it says, and and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. See, that's the holiness process. That's him cleaning us up. And listen, now listen to the relationship. This is family. And I will be a father to you. That's verse 18. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Wow. Do you see why in is a much more powerful preposition than with? So let's go to the next one. This should answer anything about, oh, you're preaching works. No, actually, look at verse 7. This is written by the guy who talked about faith contrasted with works. Check this verse 7 out. Therefore, 
This is Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Having these promises, beloved, you ready? Put on your seatbelts. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, here's the word, holiness in the fear of God. Wow. That's what he is building when he brings Jew and Gentile together. He says union with God, but you can't have union with me if you're not undergoing this cleansing cleansing process of sanctification so you can become holy. That's how you get God. Wow. Okay, put on your seatbelts. We'll see you right after the break. God bless. Welcome back, saints. Well, I hope uh, that that first half of the show really got some got some brain juices stirred and some heart palpitations going for you because um, this is a message that we commonly do not hear from the pulpit in our churches. I'm not saying it's not preached anywhere. It is, but it's not commonly preached. And that God is building a house, a place where he can rest. And you ever ask yourself, why is he not at rest? He wants to be at rest, but he's looking for a house. And it, it ain't in heaven, as we always assume. Heaven is his throne. That's what it says in Isaiah 66, um, verse 1 and 2. And he's saying, I want an even more intimate relationship than I had with your first parents all going all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Excuse me. God was with them in the garden. We can see that. I mean, he had certain types of, of times of day that he'd, you know, prefer. And it says, you know, he'd walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And there was relationship. They, they spoke to each other. They uh, enjoyed making things together, uh, naming things. That's what uh, God allowed Adam to do as he kept the earthly creation of the animal kingdom growing and growing and growing and kept asking Adam, okay, I gave it to you. What do you want to call this one? I mean, that was a partnership. That wasn't uh, you'll work for me. Adam was working with God. I mean, how cool is that? Because you go back to how much authority Father God gave us to keep and tend the garden and to have dominion over all of the material creation. And it drove the rebellious angels nuts. It drove them crazy because they, they were just like, we're superior creatures. Even as fallen angels were superior creatures to these, to these dust balls that you call human beings. You want to you wanna give them all this? And then even more so, you want to start a family and you want to live in them? and they will live in you, be unified, as John chapter 17 tells us? Well, you know, if you want to see the jealousy, just read the first three chapters of Job, and then you'll get it. You'll understand it. Okay, so I want to talk about, I'm going to go straight back to the, uh, to the book here on page, the homecoming book, and we will be on page 266. And um, I have that as a subsection there, that God's going to clean us up from the inside. If we allow him to, he won't force it. I mean, it's going to be something that we have to sign on to and say, if that's the goal, bring it on. Bring it on. Eternal life is knowing God, not knowing about God, not knowing facts and figures, not saying, oh, yeah, I remember that from Sunday school. I mean, you could go to seminary. You could go to Bible college and not know God relationally. You can go to the most prestigious um, institutions that give you masters of divinity and doctorates and all this other stuff, and you've got all these wonderful credentials and this and that, trying to impress the religious world that you know, you've really done your homework, and you could, at the same time, relationally not know God experientially. That's how Greeks did it. The Greeks say... Their, their mind was the ultimate to learn about reason. They could figure God out. Jews didn't think that way. Jews were Middle Easterners. They weren't Westerners. And the Jew, Jewish story is how do you get to know 
a seemingly an ineffable God, an unknowing God, but other than walking experientially with him in a journey. That's why Jews understand the concept of journeys and the requirements of journeys. You've got to leave Egypt, then take that journey to know God experientially, the miracles that show up, the faithfulness, how he always comes through. You're beginning to know his character. You're getting to get to know way more than Adam and Eve ever knew about God. They weren't required to do this. And God says, you want to know me, you got to learn how to depend on me. Because in learning how to depend on me, there's another word for that. When we say faith, have faith, have faith. I like the Jewish reference. If you read the complete Jewish Bible, it says instead of the word faith, it often substituted with trust. And trust is a heart experience. It's not a mental gyration of, oh, yeah, I know, I know about God. It's like, have you taken your walk where it seems like you're going under and there is no seemingly no hope for you. And then somehow you just gird your loins like David did, and you just say, I can't see how you're ever going to get me out of this, but I trust you, God, because I am your son. I am your daughter. You are my father whose character I am beginning to know by taking this journey. So on the bottom of page 66 of the Homecoming book, um, by the way, if you want to get this book, um, they have it on Amazon, etc. but you can get also um, on my website, which is uh, Simple Truth Ministries, that's plural, uh, .net. I'm not a .com, I'm not a um, .org, I'm a .net. And if you go under the, um, the book section, you can order this. But I really do think this is what God is doing in this time, and you, it's a, this is a... A book that will challenge you. Um, I'm not that the grammar is hard, but it'll challenge you as far as what we were taught, um, because it's going to challenge a lot of the traditional uh, church notions and tradition of things. To say, is it kingdom? Is it the kingdom of God? And in many cases, what we believe is, um, unfortunately, it's man-made religious rules. It's kind of what Jesus encountered when he had to take on the Pharisees and he took on the Sadducees. They perverted Torah. You know, Torah, they turned it into a, a legalistic process. And oftentimes, uh, we Gentiles uh, have our own ways of s- succumbing to the religious spirit. And it's all Tower of Babel stuff. It's all about man trying to say, I, I figured God out. I got this. You know, everything's cool. And they just keep building and building and building the Tower of Babel, saying, we can be just like God. And see, that's the rebellion. And it's just, it's still the same spiritual rebellion that began in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, except it's dressed up in religious um, robes, in religious attire, in religious settings, in religious trappings. And God's not about religion. Religion is a man-made effort to try to get to know God. Um, kingdom is a God-ordained effort to try to um, invite man to have a relationship with him, but he, he institutes it. He begins it. He walks it out with you, and he ends it when he says, hey, success, victory, triumph. So we're talking about a corporate merger here. I'm shifting from individual to corporate. And I said separately and simultaneously, there's a corporate construction project going on in Ephesians chapter 2, which involves the bringing together of the two groups of God's children, both Jews and Gentiles. As we said before, there are only two groups of people in the Scripture. You're either a Jew or you're a person of the nations, which is a Gentile. And I go on on page 267 to say God's corporate focus of bringing together disparate, separate people groups. Um, It's important for this reason. It will be the signal. It will be the message. It will be the sign to the fallen angelic rebels in the second heavens that their kingdom of earthly invasion, which happened in Genesis chapter 3, is about to come to an end. Now, that is worth studying. I will read that 
from page 267 of the Homecoming book again. God's corporate focus, larger focus, where he's bringing together two groups of people, two groups of his children, one Jewish, the other Gentile. That's the these and those in John 17 that Jesus was referring to. God's corporate focus of bringing together disparate and separated people groups will be the signal. It will be the message to the fallen angelic rebels in the second heavens that their kingdom of earthly invasion is about to come to an end. Satan, in all likelihood, understands that once the process of Gentile Christians being grafted into the Jewish olive tree, where's that talks about? Don't we read Romans chapter 11. In fact, read three chapters in Romans. Read Romans chapter 9. Read Romans chapter 10. Read Romans chapter 11, but especially chapter 11 in this reference. Satan, in all likelihood, understands that once the process of Gentiles being grafted in, back in, no, actually, it's not back in. This is the first time, being grafted into the Jewish olive tree of Israel. Once that begins, the days of the adversary's earthly occupation. Where did that, when did that happen? Genesis 3, when Eve agreed to hand over voluntarily her authority to rule and reign in the earthly kingdom, to tend it, to keep it, to have dominion over it. She handed it over to this fallen angel who was empowered because of her agreement to make an agreement with him. And then Adam went along with it. That's the kingdom of darkness that has been here ever since. You look around and ask yourself, why does the world look like it does? Why does the country of America, with all of our... our uh, spiritual and religious foundations, 150 years before there was ever a revolution against England, I'm talking about the, our real heritage, our godly heritage, why does America look the way it does today? Well, it's because Satan and all his kingdom was loosed upon the earth, and we unfortunately have removed God from our society, the last, especially the last 70 years or so. And there's a message contemporarily for the here and now that God wants to send to the enemy, to the adversary, to say your days on earth as you in your fallen kingdom ruling over mankind are just about over. So let's read out of Ephesians 2.19. So then, talking to um, Gentile believers... Paul writes in Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. In other words, what? To the, the covenants made by God with the Jews, with the Hebrews. He's saying you're a part of this. You're no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, he's talking to Gentiles here in the church of Ephesus. You are fellow citizens with God's people, and you're members of God's family. That's out of the complete Jewish Bible. Let's read it out of the New King James just to get that flavor that we Gentiles uh, were probably more familiar with and that we grew up with. Uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2.19. But now, therefore, talking to Gentiles, to the people, at the, the members of the Church of Ephesus, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints— and members of the household of God, having been built, verse 20, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, 21, in in whom the whole building is being fitted together. You see, I'm talking about construction project here. Look at the words he's using in verse 21. The whole building is being fitted together. That's piece by piece, part by part. And it grows into a holy temple of the Lord. Well, it's what did it just say? The temple is a living temple. God wants to live in it. Now look at verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Wow. 
Let's read um, more about this messaging. When God brings these two groups together, I think it was Ephesians 2.18 where those three prepositions show up, and it's, um, it's back to the Father, but it's through the Son. That's a preposition. By the Spirit, that's a preposition. We are coming back to the Father. It's a family reunion story, but it's also a construction project of God going to live in a house, in a dwelling place, in an abode, in a domicile, in a residence. I mean, if you ever studied the typology of the um, Feast of Israel, the seventh feast in the fall, the last of seven, it's three fall feasts, but the last of the total number of seven feasts is called Sukkot. And Sukkot is all about indwelling. It's where the, the Jewish um, people are instructed to build what they call sukkahs, temporary shelters on top of the roofs. And um, they are to leave holes in the, in the roofs because it's made out of palm branches and things of this nature. It's not solid. And they're to go on top of their roofs and go into the sukkahs, into and look up into the sky and get to know God. And you can look through the sukkah, but the, but the whole symbolism is going into a dwelling place, like we just read earlier in the first half of the show. So in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10, this is more of this messaging that bringing these two groups of children together in oneness with a mutual father and realizing they have a mutual enemy. Satan, who wants to basically take us out, separate us, not only from ourselves, but separate us from God. Because if we're separated from God, technically, um, looking at the definition of eternal life being union with God or unity in God and with God, um, the opposite is um, separation from God, which is death. Union with God is eternal life. Where do you see that? I'm not going to go over it again. Just look, check it out in John 17:3. Knowing God, having union with God, is eternal life. Knowing him relationally. So here's some more messaging if we go to Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. This is out of the complete Jewish Bible. Paul says, To me, the least important of all God's holy people, was given this privilege of announcing to the Gentiles, the people of the nations, the good news of Messiah's unfathomable riches, and of letting everyone see how this secret plan, it's what Paul calls a mystery in the complete Jewish Bible, the mystery is called a secret plan, how it is going to work out. This plan kept hidden, that's what mysteries are, this plan kept hidden for ages by God, the creator of everything, is for the rulers and authorities in heaven to learn. Well, folks, when we think of heaven saying, well, there's several aspects of heaven, and the, and the principalities and the powers and the rulers and the authorities are in the second heavens. That's where the rebellion began. That's where Satan began his rebellion. Again, I refer you to um, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28, okay? But the messaging is for the rulers and the authorities in heaven to learn through the existence of the messianic community. That means Jew and Gentile coming together, having the same father, being saved by the same uh, big brother, Messiah Jesus, Messiah Yeshua. They, they call him Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. They, lo- they learn, these rulers and authorities in the second heavens, that they learn that the existence, through the existence of the Messiah, I'm sorry, the Messianic community, how many-sided God's wisdom is. Well, how does that how does that pan out? Let me read it to you the same verses in the New King James. To me, this is Paul, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach amongst the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent now, here it is, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom, manifold is just another word for many-sided, the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church, so in other words, by us, but to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
according to the eternal purpose which he has accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. The announcement is, in essence, God didn't change his mind about giving to mankind the authority over all of the material creation. And I have here the last paragraph on page 267. Listen to this carefully. With the unification of both Jew and Gentile into the one sheepfold of our divine shepherd, that's Jesus. But notice, this is John chapter 10 stuff. This is all talking about there were two, um, there was one shepherd, but two sheepfolds, and they come together. The two flocks of sheep aren't separated anymore. They come together in John chapter 10. And I say here, God is signaling that his kingdom, his divine kingdom, is, is now ready to be installed on earth. Let me read out of John ten sixteen. This is Jesus. This is out of the New King James Version. He says, And other sheep which I have are not of this fold. Now, when he talks earlier in the context, he's talking about uh, coming to the Jews, because the gospel is always to the Jew first. But he's talking about other sheep which I have are, are not of this fold. Them I also must bring. See, that's the these and those that we learned about earlier in John 17 when Jesus was praying for these and those to the Father, that they, may be, that they may be one. Check this out. The same concept is in John chapter 10, and we're reading in John ten sixteen. Them also I must bring, these other sheep, okay, contextually, and they will hear my voice, and here's the conclusion, and they will be one flock, and there will, I'm sorry, not they will, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's out of the New King James Version of t- John ten sixteen. Now notice, that's the merger of the two different um, flocks of sheep. But they only have one shepherd. We have one Messiah, one Savior, one Deliverer, whose job it is to bring us back to the Father. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. John fourteen six. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? Now let's read uh, John, 20, stay in John chapter 10. Uh, starting in verse 27 to verse 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. That has nothing to do with heaven, folks. And I give them eternal life. What did we say eternally, eternal life was? John seventeen three. That they may know you, the one true God, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's eternal life. We can have that now. I'm not going to go into that right now. That's in earlier shows. But notice here in John 10, verse 27, he's saying, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. That's him. He said in the communion service, it's the covenant of my blood. You, when you receive this offering, this of what Jesus became as the perfect sacrifice, we become in union with him. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. You see, it's always an issue of life and death, knowing God or being separated from God. Neither shall shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus talking. And he goes on in verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, okay? It's the Father who chose you in John 6. Go back and check that out. You didn't choose God. God chose you. In John chapter 6. Read that chapter. You'll see that. And here's Jesus saying, And my Father who who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So two times he's saying they can't, no one will snatch, snatch them out of my hand, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. You're part of a family. You belong to this family, and God's going to do everything to keep you. Now, I add here in page 268, God's new corporate building of the two groups project of one new man and Messiah, one new man and Abba Father, must have a foundation and a cornerstone, as with any building. But these are unique foundations and a unique cornerstone with its own unique qualities. If there is to be one new man, a reunification of both Jewish children and Gentile children, God's new building will of necessity have to have a Hebrew foundation and a messianic cornerstone. That's Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of this building. 
And look at, and he said, well, where do you get that? Well, look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. It, Paul says um, here, you have been built on the foundation of the emissaries, and the New King James says, on the apostles and the prophets, with the cornerstone being Yeshua the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ the Messiah himself, in Ephesians two nineteen through 20. Additionally, this one new man and Messiah building project will of necessity divinely include both deconstruction and reconstruction components. And I refer you to Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. The deconstruction phase will encompass all that has been religiously man-made from both the Jewish camp and the Gentile camp. By contrast, the reconstruction phase will reintroduce all of the developmental facets that originated with God. It's his plan. It's his blueprint. This makeover process will, will bring with it formidable challenges requiring dramatic changes from both participating groups of God's children. Nevertheless, this reconstruction process will be one that is uniquely reflecting God's building design not one that mirrors mankind's Tower of Babel construction. You ready for God to finish his building project? Are you ready to be part and parcel of that? Wow. We will continue. We will develop more of this next week. May you have many simple truth moments in the upcoming week. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.